Welcome to Managed Care Cast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Maggie Shaw, editor for the American Journal of Managed Care. Entering its 51st year, the American Kidney Fund has made it its mission to help all patients affected by chronic kidney disease, which is the fastest growing non-contagious disease in the United States. From those at risk for chronic kidney disease through patients requiring dialysis and or transplant. First and foremost is uncovering the primary cause of the kidney failure. Unfortunately, for 14% of low-income patients, the origins of their CKD remain a medical mystery. In December of 2020, the American Kidney Fund convened the Unknown Causes of Kidney Disease Summit, bringing together government agencies, industry, patients, researchers, and rare disease organizations, hoping that by helping underserved patients get to the root cause of their kidney disease, they could also help solve this mystery for a broader patient population. From this, A roadmap was born for what would become the Unknown Causes of Kidney Disease Project, launched in mid-2021 with goals that include advocating for equitable kidney disease care, educating and empowering patients through culturally competent information, and overcoming financial and communication barriers to treatment. On this episode of Managed Care Cast, we speak with Mike Spigler, Vice President of Patient Support and Education for the American Kidney Fund who is spearheading the Unknown Causes of Kidney Disease Project. He addresses why patients are the key to all the American Kidney Fund hopes to accomplish, using the organization's voice to address rare kidney diseases, and emphasizing the necessity of policy change for care coverage support, including for genetic testing. Thank you for joining us today, Mike. Can you please introduce yourself and tell us about your work? Hi, my name is Mike Spigler. I am the Vice President of Patient Support and Education for the American Kidney Fund. We are a national nonprofit located in Rockville, Maryland, and just entering our 51st year. What precipitated the genesis of the Unknown Causes of Kidney Disease Project by the American Kidney Fund? And can you discuss some of your goals? Yeah, well, thank you very much. So the American Kidney Fund, our mission really is, to, is fighting on all fronts for those with and affected by kidney disease. And that really means that we are uh, helping patients with interventions and educations all the way from, you know, whether you're at risk for chronic kidney disease up to and through dialysis and transplant. And one of the programs that we uh, use to address that last piece uh, is uh, financial assistance programs. Uh, so we help low-income kidney patients uh, pay for a variety of costs associated with their dialysis uh, and kidney transplants. And just give you a sense of the breadth of that, that's about one out of every six dialysis patients in the country. Uh, And we accounted for almost 1,900 kidney transplants uh, in 2021 as well. Uh, You know, we collect a lot of data on these patients in that that cohort. Uh, And uh, out of those patients, you know, we get comorbidities, um, the treatment modalities that they're on, lots of information, but one piece uh, that we also ask is the primary cause of their kidney failure. Uh, now, when you look at uh, the causes of kidney failure reported by the United States renal data system, you know, your typical causes over there of, of diabetes and high blood pressure, you know, they, they make up mm, roughly two thirds to three quarters of the cases. 
but the USRDS only reports about 5% of patients don't know what caused their kidney failure. Unfortunately, we looked at our low-income patients, and these are patients where their household income is $25,000 uh, or less, and most of them are upside down in income versus expenses. Uh, in those patients, we had 14% that didn't know the cause of their kidney failure. And uh, to us, that really was alarming. Uh, it was something that we wanted to look into. Uh, so that's really where the Unknown Causes of Kidney Disease Project really was born from. Uh, we brought together lots of stakeholders uh, in December of 2020 for a large summit that we did, you know, hoping that, if, look, if we can solve the problem for our underserved patients, maybe we can solve the problem more broadly. Um, but we had federal government agencies there, industry, patients, the leading researchers, uh, most of the rare kidney disease uh, advocacy organizations. Uh, and we really came together at this summit to, to figure out exactly what we can do. We created a roadmap, which is really kind of a, a white paper for how to solve this problem. In the middle of 2021, we published that uh, and now started the work to try to, to address that. So, you know, the roadmap identified many things uh, that were issues, um, barriers to this problem. There were financial barriers related to um, uh, getting genetic tests and genetic counseling done for patients. Um, there are, you know, communication barriers between patients and professionals as far as the cause of the kidney disease. Um, and just, just a lot more as far as early identification and other things that need to be done to help these patients uh, before they end up in dialysis or on a transplant. And, you know, what we really want to avoid is, is a patient who um, gets a kidney transplant. You don't know what the cause of the kidney failure is, ends up being some kind of a rare disease, and that kidney's lost too to that rare disease. So um, that's what we're working, working toward as part of this project. Why is there such a great need for patient advocacy? right now? Well, if you think about uh, chronic kidney disease, uh, the estimate is uh, at least 37 million Americans have chronic kidney disease. It is the fastest growing non-contagious disease in the United States. Uh, about one in seven adults are affected. And the scary part of this, and what also leads to some of this misdiagnosis, underdiagnosis, is that nine out of 10 people with early kidney disease are unaware that they have it because there really are no symptoms uh, in the early stages for, for most people. Um, so we have a great need for patient advocacy so we can improve the quality of care for people with kidney disease uh, and work to prevent it. It's a life-altering disease. It's one of the top 10 causes of deaths in the United States. And I think most people wouldn't, wouldn't name kidney disease if they're going through those. Um, so it really is a national priority that, that we have to address. One of your next steps is to coalesce patient advocates, rare disease organizations, kidney advocacy organizations, and medical professionals to discuss public policy, patient and caregiver empowerment, and healthcare professional awareness and education. How did you land on these four groups and these three areas of focus? The patient piece is easy. Everything that we do here at the American Kidney Fund, we make sure that the patient voice is included um, in, in both from programmatic creation and, and problem identification all the way up to and including the intervention and evaluation. So patients are at the key of everything that we do here. Um, you know, our, our peers in the space are an important part of this as well. I mean, we all have a role to play in this and getting uh, the word out about this and, and putting some interventions uh, into place. Um, and our rare disease partners are, are really, you know, I think one of the most important aspects of this because many of them are so so passionate, but unfortunately, you know, are, are running on a shoestring budget. Some of them have volunteer run boards and staff. 
Um, so it's important that we use our you know, wide reach and our voice to help find these patients for them and work hand in hand um, in a synergistic way to try to get these patients uh, to them in the right way. Of course, for medical professionals, we've identified there are several gaps there uh, that we, we need to work on. Um, you know, and, and you mentioned some of those three focus areas, just starting with, with healthcare professionals. Um, we actually just uh, recently published um, a press release regarding a study that we did of 300 uh, medical professionals. Um, and it, it showed a couple things. One, the prevalence of the unknown causes of kidney disease is actually, I think, much greater than the US RDS is reporting. In those uh, 300 pay, uh, professionals that we uh, surveyed, uh, even across nephrology, primary care, uh, transplant surgeons, everything was hovering right around 15% of their patient base. They have absolutely no idea what caused their, their kidney failure in those patients or kidney disease. Um, it's about another 40% where they were unsure of really only about 30 to 40%. Um, they had a really, uh, absolute known cause of their kidney disease. So, you know, working with professionals to give them the tools to help identify these patients is a huge part of this. Uh, and one of the, the major areas that we're working on, uh, with some CME and CE, uh, opportunities to educate, uh, physicians, especially in primary care to make sure they're not only, you know, having some other causes of kidney disease on top of mind when they're seeing patients, but also helping them with the, the referral practices and, and protocols for when to get uh, patients, especially with a suspected uh, genetic cause uh, into nephrology. Uh, the other two areas is public policy. I think I mentioned that uh, a little bit earlier that, that it absolutely is a, a barrier that we have, um, especially in um, federal and state-run programs like Medicare and Medicaid there's not a lot of support from uh, a coverage standpoint for genetic testing uh, and genetic counseling. So that's a major issue. I mean, if, if patients can't access uh, genetic tests, even when that's the suspected cause, that's, a, that's an issue. And when we asked those same professionals I mentioned earlier in that survey, you know, what's a major barrier to genetic costs by far and away, out-of-pocket cost to patients was the number one, um, at least um, uh, perceived problem that they had. Uh, and then finally, you know, patients, again, are a key component to what we're doing here. We want to be able to empower patients to uh, work with their clinicians to secure an accurate diagnosis. So, um, you know, we set priorities for some of the top education messages that we most needed for patients, things like asking for a second opinion, how to get appropriate family history, your rights to getting a definitive diagnosis, definitive diagnosis uh, and putting all those things together to, to really uh, help you know, start uh, a conversation between patients and clinicians uh, and really give them that kind of empowerment. How do policy advocacy, empowerment, and education intersect in our understanding of chronic kidney disease? Yeah, well, I think they go hand in hand. Uh, chronic kidney disease is a major public health problem. We should all be paying attention to it, especially given the statistics that I mentioned earlier. And Taking action to support increased funding for research, as well as to advocate for national standards for genetic testing and doing things like working toward improving the testing done at annual physicals, all of these things uh, can enhance our understanding of chronic kidney disease. So we encourage people to feel empowered, to ask about getting the right test for CKD at their doctor's appointments. Primary care physicians are so busy, um, you know, multiple appointments back to back to back. Uh, I think they feel rushed. I think the patients feel that rush. Um, and they're dealing with so many patient issues in primary care that it's really important for people to be their own best advocates uh, and make sure that the kidney conversation is at the top of the agenda when they have a physical.
I want to shift the conversation now to the more clinical aspect of chronic kidney disease. With the kidneys filtering our entire blood supply every half hour, how soon is decreased kidney function typically noticed? And can you help discuss some of the typical signs of kidney disease? Sure. Great question. Something we get here all the time. I think just the last part of that question is the most important regarding typical signs of kidney disease. Again, most patients with early stages of kidney disease, and sometimes even some of the later stages of kidney disease, you have no symptoms or no symptoms that may stand out to you as, as being kind of out of the ordinary. Uh, so it's critically important, you know, that you're asking your doctor how your kidneys are doing, that you're getting regular tests. Um, there's a blood test for kidney disease. There's a urine test for kidney disease. Um, but in regards to kind of when you can start to notice uh, that urine test I mentioned is really the most important piece. Really the only way to identify stage one and stage two of chronic kidney disease is through a urine test. And uh, the way that I always explain this to patients and, and you know, for even for the professionals listening, I think, you know, this is a, a good way to explain this to patients. Um, if you think about your, your kidneys as kind of like a, a pasta strainer, right? And when that's working correctly, the pasta stays in and the water goes through. If you think about your kidneys filters kind of like that, uh, when they're damaged or they're not working correctly, protein instead of pasta kind of makes it through those filters and into your urine. So you can do a urine test. Uh, and if you see high levels of protein or just really any abnormal number of, amount of protein in your urine, it's a, it's a possible sign of early kidney disease uh, and more tests need to be done. So that's really the first sign is, is seeing protein in your urine. Um, but you know, then there's other tests that can really confirm that uh, a blood test, which will give you, uh, put you into an equation uh, for something called EGFR, which stands for estimated glomerular filtration rate. And that's really just means how fast is your kidneys, are your kidneys filtering your blood? So, um, but again, urine tests, that's the earliest way uh, to find uh, the really first signs of kidney damage. According to the CDC, 40% of people with severely reduced kidney function do not know they have CKD. Can you help us to understand why this is, as well as the principal reasons that kidney disease goes undiagnosed? Yeah, I think it's uh, a, a few reasons. One, as I mentioned, um, there are usually no signs of kidney disease early on, right? So um, if you're not feeling sick, you're obviously less inclined to go to the doctor. I think annual physicals are um, severely underutilized in this country. So that's a big part of it. But I think even when the test is done, uh, th there's a couple things. One, let's say the test is done. Let's say kidney disease is identified in the lab results. Uh, and, and let's say that uh, a person's primary care doctor even shares that with a patient. There is a major health literacy gap in this country. Um, and, and patients, you know, you can have a doctorate and, and have trouble understanding some of your health information. So, you know, you, it's one thing to, to say something to a patient in a way it, that's factual. It's another way to say things to a patient that's factual and in plain language that they can understand and digest. So uh, it's critically important that, you know, even if you're sharing something with a patient, um, you know, that, that's been being done the right way. And then I think the, the real, the third piece is even when those tests done are done, uh, even when it's found, sometimes those conversations just aren't happening between clinician and patient uh, or aren't happening, you know, in a really uh, honest way. 
I'll give you an ex- a personal example of myself. I, uh, I'm primary caregiver for my mom. Um, you know, she had early Alzheimer's when I started to become her caregiver. I took her to a new primary care doctor. Uh, they tested, uh, gave her a full physical, blood and urine, going through her blood test results and just kind of the primary care doctor was going through everything and said, yeah, kidney functions off a little bit, nothing to worry about and just went right on to the next thing. And I said, well, stop time out. You know, luckily I, I was the right person to be in the room at that at time, right, for me. Um, but that's one of the things we're trying to do here at the American Kidney Fund is, is put some version of the, the knowledge base that I have in the room with the patients and empower them when they're doing that. Because, you know, my mom was in stage 3B of kidney disease. She was on medications that was exacerbating her issues. Her mother, my grandmother, died of diabetic kidney disease on dialysis. That was in the chart. And that conversation still didn't happen. So with all of those things lined up, it still didn't happen. And that's a major issue. So it's, it's, it's not being tested. It's not being communicated in a plain language way, or it's not being communicated, period, are really some of the major reasons. In that same line, what diseases mimic kidney disease that can lead to a misdiagnosis? How do those pathophysiologies overlap? Yeah. So, you know, once you start to get into later stages of kidney disease, there are some symptoms that, that start to show up, uh, muscle cramps, nausea, lack of appetite. I mean, all of those things I just said there could be, you know, uh, characterized in a hundred different things as simple as the flu. Um, and you know, you actually see uh, about a third of patients with, uh, that end up in kidney failure, um, go to the emergency room thinking just that, gosh, I have some of those, those things I just mentioned. And, I must have the flu. I better go get checked out. And they go to the emergency room uh, and they're told they're feeling that way because their kidneys have failed uh, and they have to start dialysis immediately. So, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's really important that you're, you're sharing all of your symptoms that you have with your doctor. I mean, that's a huge part of the unknown causes of kidney disease project too, because even when you're diagnosed with kidney disease, um, it's important to share all of your symptoms because if it is a rare disease that's causing it, you know, there may be some other things that could clue a, a doctor in, you know, are you having lots of kidney stones? Are you having hearing loss, uh, vision problems? I mean, there's some other things that may clue someone in uh, to a different condition. So, um, you know, it, again, the key point is there's not a lot of symptoms until it's really far along. Um, so it's, it's really key um, that you're sharing uh, as many symptoms as you can with your doctors, all of your doctors, uh, so they can help uh, kind of, you know, figure that piece out. When a misdiagnosis occurs or CKD goes undiagnosed, what are the implications of a long-term later stage diagnosis? Well, it can have kind of a ripple effect. I mean, obviously there are some, some new medications out there now uh, for patients in earlier stages of chronic kidney disease, especially with diabetic kidney disease. Um, Even with some rare diseases, there are some, some treatments now out there for those, something that I couldn't, some of these diseases, I couldn't have imagined a cure 15 years ago, uh, I'm seeing now. Um, so it's important just from a very simple treatment standpoint, uh, that, that patients are, are identified early. Um, but also, you know, it's also managing some of the comorbidities that go with it, right? I mentioned diabetes, and high blood pressure being the real main, the leading causes of kidney failure. So you know, if you know you have early stages of kidney disease, it's going to be super important to manage the, that diabetes, manage that high blood pressure. What you want to do is slow down or stop the progression of kidney disease. You can't really reverse it, but you can slow it to a point 
um, where it's almost stopped. I mentioned my mom, I, seven years later, she's still in 3B because we're taking really good care of her, of her kidney disease and her diabetes. Um, so, you know, that's an important part of it. But what we want to do is avoid patients, like I mentioned, they're crashing into dialysis, going to the emergency room completely unprepared, because when that happens, it sets off a whole chain of events. You're much more likely to have to start dialysis in an in-center facility going three times a week. Uh, it really limits your options of doing dialysis at home. And a lot of the research will show that once you start in-center, it's very hard to get into home dialysis. So that's important. Um, you know, if you have someone that may be a potential living kidney donor, right, you can maybe, you can even get a preemptive transplant before you get on dialysis. So if you know that, you can start you know, talking to friends and family members about uh, getting on the transplant list and finding a living donor. So there are just lots and lots of different things. And, um, you know, even to the point of clinical trials, I mean, most of the trials that are out there are for chronic kidney disease patients pre-dialysis. So there's just a myriad of reasons of why it's important. I would like to ask you about disease disparities now. It's known that Blacks tend to be diagnosed later and at later stages than whites as well as that they are less often referred for transplants, can you help our audience to better understand why this is? I, I think there's lots of issues here. Um, and, and I would be remiss to, to not mention uh, just systemic racism as a part of this, both from historical issues that have caused, um, you know, uh, different guidelines to be set for, for black patients to uh, just looking at a patient and, and thinking, okay, well, they're not going to manage this disease or they're not going to be a good trans, uh, a good candidate for a transplant or home dialysis. Uh, there's implicit bias uh, as part of that as well. Yeah. I, I can't dismiss um, systemic racism as being a, a big part of this. I mean, the American public health association, you know, has now listed uh, racism as a serious public health crisis. And I, I think it's certainly uh, pertains um, here uh, in kidney disease as well. But, you know, as far as transplant goes, there are many reasons. You know, you're more likely to find a living donor from someone who is similar to you, both from a, from a genetic standpoint, a blood type, tissue type standpoint, and with chronic kidney disease running rampant uh, in, in Black communities, that's going to limit options from like a living donor standpoint. So that's part of it. But there's also a major uh, issue regarding uh, access to, to medical care, uh, access to finances. You know, it, it's one thing for a patient to have to uh, spend down their, their life savings and get on Medicaid. You know, if they're being asked by a transplant center to say, well, you probably need a certain amount in your, uh, of money to pay for uh, the medications after transplant, it, those two things can't live in the same place. And if you look at the patients that we assist, uh, with our, our financial assistance program, uh, with our health insurance premium program, the patients that we're getting transplanted is upside down from the rest of the world. I mean, if you are a Black patient or Hispanic Latino patient that we're assisting, um, you are much more likely to have gotten a transplant than the white counterparts in our database. And the only difference, we're providing direct financial assistance to these patients to help offset some of their, their treatment costs. So, you know, having better access to, to, to better to care, uh, to have funds to be able to pay for immunosuppressive drugs after the transplant are all part of it as well. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's really the social determinants of health playing a role from finances, it's systemic racism, 
It's just the prevalence of kidney disease in the, in the community uh, that's all playing a part into that. How important is it to continue holding discussions on awareness and education of rare kidney diseases? Well, I think in short, it's critically important. Uh, while we, we know that diabetes and high blood pressure are the main causes of kidney disease, again, about three out of every four new cases, we have so much more to learn about rare kidney diseases and so much more to investigate in the search for new treatments. Uh, when we call more attention to these rare diseases and we elevate their profile, we can develop more resources to help people after they're diagnosed and to hopefully slow the progression of their disease so they don't go into kidney failure. Before we close out, are there any concluding thoughts you would like to add? No, I, I just appreciate you having uh, me on and giving us the opportunity to talk about this. And if anyone is interested in our Unknown Causes of Kidney Disease Project, uh, they can find that on our website, which is kidneyfund.org slash U-C-K-D. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. You're very welcome. For all of us at AJMC.com, thanks for listening. To learn more about this issue, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.